The Leap is also supported by a generous gift from an anonymous KQED major donor. This is The Leap. I'm Amy Standen. And I'm Judy Campbell. Amy and I work with this woman, Lisa. She's single, in her 30s, and there's this thing she's been doing for years. Throughout my life, I've kind of made a point of asking people who seem to be in productive, happy relationships about how they work. Because it's always seemed elusive to her. My parents had a terrible relationship and an even worse divorce. So I think I was just always kind of looking for other models and looking for tips. Like, how do you avoid that? Lisa became a kind of student of love. And that explains why she paid such close attention to her friend Marie's relationship with her partner Greg. I'd definitely never seen a relationship like theirs. On one hand, they're opposites. Marie leaves nothing to chance. She plans everything. Marie is really fun and kind of wild, but even her crazy parties are meticulously planned. Everything from just very detailed directions to get to the location, how the timing was going to work, you know, is come and have a drink, and then at this time we're transitioning to karaoke, and these are the costumes you're expected to wear. Greg, more of a drifter, not into details. As far as Greg was concerned, only the top of the dish needed to be washed because the food never touched the bottom. And yet, they just seemed so damn connected. Every Thursday, Marie and Greg had a day off, and they would have a full day date. Nothing would get in its way. As a couple, they were fun, effortless, mutually adoring. Even when she was telling us about the ways that he drove her absolutely bananas, there was still such affection. This show is about leaps, what it takes to get from one place in life to another. And this is the story of a leap Lisa witnessed. It's not her own. It's Marie's story. Because this relationship that Lisa so admired, it took a sudden turn. Here's Marie. It was just a normal Sunday. We got up, we had breakfast, and he had plans to go see his friends that night. This day was about four years ago. At this point, Marie and Greg had been a couple for nine years. They'd bought a house together the year before. Then the police came knocking on my door at like 2 a.m. and they were like, yeah, um, your, your partner is in the hospital. We don't think he's going to make it through the night. You need to get there. But Marie had some experience with this kind of thing. You know, he had had a couple brushes with death, you know, just because he was one of those, like, surfers, skateboarders, extreme sport people. And so he just always had these crazy stories of, like, him defeating death. So I was like, you know, even though they had said that to me, I was like, oh, this is just another story that's going to be like, and then they thought he was going to die, and then he didn't. When Marie got to the hospital, Greg was in a coma. He had been found on his bike, still clicked into the pedals, but in bushes. He may have been without oxygen for about 45 minutes. The doctors thought his heart had suddenly stopped, but they didn't know what happened. For four days, Marie threw a party in his room. Greg loved having a party, and he had this recurring dream, and sometimes it was a nightmare, of just like him having this big party, and it was outdoors, and all of his friends were there. And at the end of the party, there was just a little door that he had to go through, like in a white gate, and he just, that was the end of the party. Marie didn't want to think about the white door yet, but a party, that was something she could do. So I just made sure in those days that we had a lot of people coming to visit, you know, I played music that he liked, um, you know, 
were making jokes and like painting his toenails and his fingernails to be like, you're going to wake up and you're going to have clown toes and, you know, just silly things like that. I actually did believe it was going to be this amazing story and he was going to, you know, I still thought we were going to grow old together. But no, by day five, it was clear he was at the end. I said, if you need to move on, you know, don't worry about me. Please do that. Um, and then, and 10 minutes later, not even, that's when he hit that high temperature. A temperature of 109, too high for his brain to survive. It was the end. Greg died in the hospital. Marie was now 37 and a widow. So now what? At the risk of sounding cold or insensitive, I'm betting you've probably heard a story like this one before, about someone suddenly, shockingly, losing someone they love. And they are heartbreaking stories. The loss, it's like having an organ ripped out of you. Absence becomes a black hole. I definitely didn't think I was a human being anymore. I definitely felt like I was just this thing getting up every morning feel like you're so broken that you'll never be able to be a whole person again and then the story becomes how do you pull yourself up how do you get your life back that's familiar too but I doubt you've ever heard this version of that climb back into a wholeness a satisfying life We're going to back up and meet another close friend of Marie's, Eileen. When Eileen heard the news about Greg, she headed right to the hospital, stopping for a care package, toothbrush, socks, food. She had no idea what Marie would be capable of doing on her own. But when she got there, she was floored by how well Marie was functioning. And I remember thinking, how is she doing that? I, I can't even imagine putting my shoes on. You know, how, how is she doing that? And thinking, I would never be able to do that. When Greg finally let go, Marie did have trouble doing the basic things. I would kind of just stare into space. <laughs> a lot of friends jumped in to help. There was a memorial to plan, logistics to figure out. And Eileen, a fellow planner and organizer, was taking on duties, helping Marie check things off her list. She was, you know, offering to, like, pick my friends up and family up from the airport um, for people who were coming to visit. And, you know, Eileen was just her amazing self. So many people wanted to celebrate Greg. There was a lot to arrange. People were writing songs, doing performances. Eileen's husband, Steve, wanted to mark the occasion in his own way. They'd been couple friends, but Steve had a close individual friendship with Greg, too. And he wanted a way to keep him in his life. So the day before the memorial, just after he and Eileen had lunch with Marie, he marched into a bike shop and, on the spot, bought a brand new bike. He really saw this as a way of honoring Greg and kind of how Greg touched his life and, um, and a way to keep that memory close. It kind of annoyed Eileen. Why now? Bikes in the city are dangerous, especially since Steve didn't have great depth perception from an eye injury as a kid. And it was kind of spooky after what happened to Greg. But he was taken with it. He bought the bike and rode toward home.
And then I got the call and I actually thought it was a joke because I was like, there's no way. There had been an accident. He had a helmet on, biking at a moderate pace. Uh, there were witnesses. Somebody heard a pop before the crash. He'd landed on his head with the force of his body coming down and it caused brainstem damage. That was way too extreme to repair. Steve was kept alive in the hospital so that his organs could be donated. And then he died, nine days after Greg. A mutual friend called Marie to tell her what happened. It was one of those moments where you're just like, this can't possibly be happening. Like, this is worse than any nightmare you could come up with. Marie heads back to the hospital, the same one Greg died in, and spends the night sitting with Eileen and her family. Remember, this is the night before Greg's memorial service, and once again, Eileen is amazed by Marie's composure. I remember being like, you do not belong back here. Like, this is too hard for you. Like, you, thank you so much for coming, and yet, like, you have a memorial to put on tomorrow. But Marie felt she needed to be there, the way Eileen was there for her. She even, in a sort of fog, put together her own care package for Eileen. The only thing I do remember is that, um, you know, Eileen apologizing for not going to Greg's memorial. Because <laughs> that's so Eileen. <laughs> this is a story about what happens when two people, good friends, are able to climb their way out of a pit together. Most people, when they lose someone suddenly, at some point feel no one understands what they're going through. Marie and Eileen, they lost the person who understood them best at the same time. And pretty immediately, they became that for each other. They will go through this together every Tuesday night. They called it the Widow's Dinner. We'll get to that after a short break. Stay with us. The widow's dinner started because Eileen didn't cook. Steve always did their cooking, and Marie wanted to make sure she was eating. But it quickly became something bigger. We did widow's dinners to try to have a moment where we could put down the perception of being okay, that we didn't have to fake it with each other. Marie would say some days that I just can't get out of bed. I'm going to stay under the covers and eat Cheetos. (laughs) It's just what this day is going to look like. Like, yeah, have those days. Those hard, hard lows where you cry so much it hurts. Where you cry so much that you feel like the crying hangover. We would joke about that, which is who knew you could get a hangover from crying? At Widow's Dinners, they found they could also talk about things that felt far too petty to mention to other people. When we were together, we could unleash all these nasty, horrible thoughts that we had to each other and not feel like we were being judged. Like those, like, fucking have to take out the fucking trash now. You know, it used to be Greg's chore. Marie expected the overwhelming sadness, getting pummeled by the loss. But she was surprised and confused by how angry she felt until she saw Eileen was feeling it too. There would just be times where she would say something like, I was just so angry this week and I don't know why. And I would be like, yes, I was so angry, too, for no particular reason. Talking to each other was so different from talking to other people. Other people would say things that made them cringe. So many people would say, don't worry, you'll meet someone else. It was like, 
I'm sorry, did you not hear about the part where I just lost the best person in my world? Like That is what I'm sad about, not that I think I'm going to be alone. I also had people who were so clearly just wanting to gossip, tell me everything. And it had such a funny energy behind it. It was like, I barely know you. Marie and Eileen did not want to grieve in public. Lots of crying sessions in the bathroom. So that would be one of the markers Marie and I would use. Like, made it through a day without crying in the bathroom. Woo! <laughs> At every turn, Marie and Eileen were able to look each other in the eyes and say clearly that what they were feeling and what they were doing was right. Like, you feel that? It's okay for me to feel it, too. I'm doing this, so you can do it, too. And as the months wore on, they reminded each other of their old selves, the selves that take care of business. You know, like Eileen and I both will have spreadsheets for the stupidest things, right? So, you know, I I used to keep a spreadsheet of, like, all the wine that I owned. So the widow's dinner evolved into something new, a night to tackle things. Marie and Eileen worked on getting their lives in order. They felt themselves when they were getting things done. They made lists. They wrote their wills, figured out what of Greg's and Steve's needed to be given away. Then things like reminding each other it's time to clean the rain gutters. And it was just, you know, pretty funny that we both took that method to get us out of it and that we kept each other going. Together, Marie and Eileen were able to make a choice, a choice to try to let go of the grief, to try to move on. That became like an item on their to-do list that could be tackled with the right planning. And this is where we come back to Lisa, Marie's close friend who so admired her relationship with Greg. Because this, checklists, actions, plans, composure, is not what she expected grief to look like. In my family, Italian-American, like, death is drama. That's all it is. Like, it is drama. And it's almost seen as disrespectful if you are not showing the appropriate level of drama. Instead, Marie and Eileen were busy reinforcing the opposite message to each other. It's okay to want to let go, to move on, to make a new life. It's okay. And that is no small thing, because moving away from the grief is also taking steps away from the person you love. You may forget their smell, what they sound like. It's comforting to stay with the person you love, even if they're no longer around. And it can feel like an enormous betrayal, to let that person go. Marie has a role model for what she didn't want her life to be. It was her aunt. Her aunt lost her husband around the same age that Marie lost Greg. She's 68 now, and she's still alone. She still uses we when she, you know, talks about, which, you know, I I do hope that I'm still talking about Greg 30 years from now if I'm still alive, but, like, I don't think that I want to be using the we with him at that point. You know, if you have a loved one that you think is your soulmate, can you find another? Is it possible? Each on her own time, Eileen and Marie decided, yes. I feel like if you want to be happy, you can be happy. You just might have to work a little harder than others. About a year after becoming widows, Marie and Eileen decided it was time to put something new on their to-do list, dating. But they each had a different way of going about it. Marie dreaded it, but she forced herself to do it. She started online dating. My rules were I would go out with at least five guys that I met online, and I gave myself a whole year to do it, which, you know, some people can do that in one week. It was like medicine for her a lot of the time. She did not like doing it, and she was really bad at it. 
And Eileen, who'd been with Steve since she was 19 years old and had never really dated, she loved it. It was a welcome distraction. She would be like, okay, there's this algorithm, you know, like you have to respond to everybody who responds to you, even if they're creepy or whatever, because then that makes your ranking higher. She had it all down, like she was gaming the system. She was hilarious. Now, after four years of widow's dinners, both women are in serious long-term relationships. They still have a standing date. Tuesdays are reserved for each other. They always check in. But these days, they skip it a lot. They don't need it as much. Marie's friend, Lisa, she's gone from marveling over Marie's relationship to marveling at the way she's handled its awful, abrupt end. She says maybe death doesn't have to be all drama. Nobody in their right mind would ever suggest that those two did not love the hell out of each other. I mean, they truly loved each other. Marie still talks to Greg. Moving on doesn't mean letting go of him altogether. And she says it still helps for her to remember something he used to say to her back when they were going to live happily ever after together. I didn't like to get out of bed because we lived in the hate and there was a lot of fog in the morning. So like I hated getting out of bed. And um, he had this funny saying. He would be like, okay, well, just think if you get out of bed today, you know, think of one good thing that you can do today if you got out of bed. And he's like, for me, I just think like if I get out of bed today, I can have a sandwich. (laughs) So like, you know, that kind of stuck with me every day. I'm like, okay, if I get out of bed, what's the one good thing I can do today, you know, like for myself? The Leap is produced by me, Judy Campbell. And me, Amy Standen, for KQED San Francisco. Our team includes Jason Black, Annie Brown, Cecilia Lay, Susie Oki, Joanne Wallace, and Matt Williams. Big thanks also to our friend Paul Lancor for all his help. Marianne McCune edited this story. The scoring and audio mixes by Seth Samuel. Nathan Campbell wrote and performed the song you are just about to hear. And if you haven't already, subscribe. You'll get new episodes delivered automatically every other week and make our bosses really happy. And while you're at it, leave a comment in iTunes. That helps us and helps other people find out about the show. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening. Till next time. Leaping lizards, is that really me? I wasn't born to fly, Lord, Lord, I was born to creep. So circle your buzzers.